And so if you have a Bible, I want you to turn with me uh, to Mark chapter 2. So Mark chapter 2, again, feel free to grab one of those uh, books if you don't have one to take notes or uh, whatever you may uh, need as well. There should be some pens in your seat as well. If not, I'm sure we have some that we can get to you. There's something about scandals that are intriguing, <laughs> right? When you, when you really think about our culture, our culture has an infatuation with scandals. Uh, several news organizations wouldn't exist without them. Uh, one news organization specifically uh, is dedicated to finding them. They pay millions of dollars to get scoop on different issues and different scandals with politics and politicians and celebrities. And so there is an infatuation with scandal. Every other day is another news article about another political scandal or another celebrity who maybe has cheated on their spouse or their person they're living with or whatever. Um, We see these scandals in the news all the time. We we hear about them. We see them. Um, And I I don't know about you, but this is uh, my my kind of definition. When my kids ask me how to define something, you know, like, what is that, when, they, when I say something and they're like, which is too often probably, I say something and they're like, what are you talking about? When you, and they would be like, look, they'd look at me, for instance, right now, and they'd be like, what's a scandal? I don't even know what the scandal is. And I would be like, well, it's, you know, scandalous. <laughs> you, never, you ever done that, right? Your kids ask you this really deep question. You're like, I know the word. I know what it means, but telling you what it means is a little difficult. And so you just add some extra, <laughs> extra words on the end of a word to define it. And you're like, scandalous, right? It's when someone does scandalous things right? (laughs) And so really, the reason there are scandals and the reason that we have scandals is because we are a scandalous people. We are not perfect. We sin and we fall short and we make really, really bad choices sometimes, oftentimes. I know that makes no sense when you say sometimes, oftentimes. (laughs) But the tendency is we fall short. We are sinners. And so we are a scandalous People And so we started this next section of God's Word in the book of Mark, and Mark chapter 2 begins a section of five, um, not necessarily scandals, this one is a little more scandalous, I would say, uh, especially in the eyes of the Pharisees and the scribes and the um, teachers of the law. They viewed this section and this story as very scandalous, but in this section that we have this morning is our second controversy that Mark gives that Jesus had to deal with through this section starting in chapter 2 and going all the way to chapter 3 verse 6. And so last week uh, we looked at first this this really this kind of scandalous story of how this man was lowered into, uh, into a roof. The roof was literally in the Greek, it was like the friends unroofed the roof. <laughs> they took the roof off, they lower their friend down into, uh, in front of Jesus because they could not get to him, but they were not going to be deterred. And so sure enough, they get their friend down to Jesus. And in a really scandalous way, Jesus doesn't say, my friend, you're, you're, you're healed. Stand up, walk, go out, take your bed and walk. No, he looks at the man and, in a, and from the eyes of all those gathered there were taken back by what Jesus said. He looked at the man 
And everyone knows, they probably, usually a paralytic and other people who had different, various, very outside, outward noticeable diseases, people noticed them. They knew them because they couldn't work for themselves. So oftentimes they were found at public gathering places to try to ask for help and money to get different things to be able to meet their needs. And so this man may very well have been very known by other people, and they would have known this man is paralyzed and he's not able to walk. And so maybe everyone's watching with anticipation. What's Jesus going to do? What's he going to say? You would think he would just heal the man, but no, he looks at him and he says, son, your son, he calls him son, love that word. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. He looks at him and he took him from a man who was far from God to a a person who now is a follower of Jesus. He said, son, your sins are forgiven. I forgive you. Now, you would say, well, this, if Jesus is Jesus of Nazareth, and they're like, well, how does, how does Jesus of Nazareth know this guy? What has this guy done to Jesus of Nazareth? What, is he, what has he done to, to need Jesus' forgiveness? They're confused by that. And why would that be confusing? They're like, well, this man hasn't done anything against Jesus. Why would he, why would he need to forgive this guy? Only if he was God. And so Jesus, in a scandalous way to these people, he's claiming that he is actually God and that he has the authority to forgive sins, to wipe your slate clean. You see, none of us have that authority. We might have that when we try to hold something against someone, unforgiveness. We can hold that against them and we can choose to forgive them and and to start over, uh, kind of start with a clean slate. But none of us can forgive the sins of another person's life. Only God can do that. And the scribes and Pharisees knew this very well. They knew that this was scandalous because they knew that only God can do this. And if he is claiming to forgive this person's sin, he's claiming to be God. And this was the first way that they viewed him as scandalous. And this morning's text, as we look at it in chapter 2, we're going to quickly see as well another controversy. Brings us to our next controversy. And this one is salacious in its details when it comes to uh, the, the keepers of the law and looking at this person. So Mark chapter 2 in your Bibles, I want to encourage you to, to turn with me and look at this. In Mark chapter 2, starting in verse uh, 13, says this. He went out again, so Jesus, beside the sea. Again, remember, most of his ministry happened in in and around the Sea of Galilee. So in Galilee, he's not in, you know, he's not in Jerusalem, he's not in downtown Israel, he's out more in the countryside, I guess you'd say, and he's around the Sea of Galilee, and most of the public ministry that you read in the Gospels comes around these areas in Capernaum, in this area. And so it says, he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him. And what is he doing? We've been seeing this throughout this book. He was teaching them. So here he is again, he's teaching. And notice this in verse 14, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, if you're familiar with this text, or maybe if you're unfamiliar with this text, there's some really remarkable things that happen in just these first first two verses. You know, if there's one thing that can bring enemies uh, to agreement is a hatred for taxes and government. I think all of us, it's like, you know, like take a person who's over here and a person over here and you have totally different views. But when it comes to taxes and and those kind of things, oftentimes we're just like, oh, I can't stand, 
uh, tax season, or I can't stand how the IRS takes your money. I don't know about you, but I've heard different stories. I remember someone who, their very first paycheck, you know, they were like 15, and they're thinking, oh man, they were doing the math in their head, I'm going to make this much money, and then they get to look at their paycheck, and they're like, what happened to all my money? <laughs> that ever, if it ever happened to you, I remember that first time for me, it was like, wait, what happened? Where did all my money go? I thought I worked all this time for this. And so easily, this kind of brings people together, a hatred towards, uh, towards um, tax uh, officials. But uh, that does not do it justice to understand this for the, the Jews. Because you have to remember, these are not people. So a Jewish tax collector is someone, because remember, this is not a democratic government. This isn't elected officials. This isn't like you elected your buddy or your friend or your person who's, who's cast their vision. No, you are under the Roman rule. You are, you are out, an outside government owns you. And they can take what they want from you. And when, when it came to tax season, there was the, the Roman tax. I mean, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. So Caesar was going to get his tax on your work, on your produce, on all these different things. They're going to take from you. And that's one thing, but it's another when your Jewish friend becomes a tax collector. Because, see, the thing is, the Roman government doesn't say, well, all right, well, you're going to be this, and you're going to be that, and you're going to be a tax collector, and you're going to be a tax collector. No, tax collectors paid for the right to be a tax collector. They would pay to actually have this job. You, like, pay in the Roman government to say, hey, I, wanna, I want this job. So they would pay money to become a tax collector. And so as a tax collector, there's, you know, there's certain fees that are going straight to Caesar and to the government. But anything be above and beyond that, you could set the price. You set the price. So say if Caesar says, all right, I need a tenth of your grain. Well, you could take a tenth, but you could say it's 20%. Sorry. Give me 20%. And you take the rest for yourself, and you give the 10% to the government. They could do this. Think of this. Now think of this. Here they are around the Sea of Galilee. Here's a tax collector. He could walk up to someone, a fisherman, and say, oh, let me see your catch there. Nice. You, I see you've, you've had a good day today. I'll take some of that now. Thank you. Think, I mean, like, in, like already, I think all of us can kind of get a little bit of a sense of like, ugh, frustration when it comes to someone like this. Well, this was the case when it came to Jewish tax collectors. If you wanted to be a tax collector, you paid for it. And when you paid for it, though, with your view of your other Jewish comrades, you see, they all said that, no, you were not. They literally, they banned them. They excommunicated them from synagogues. A tax collector was not allowed to be in a synagogue. A tax collector also was not able to be a judge or to be a witness in a court case. These, the, listen, the Pharisees and the scribes of that day, even there's writings on this where, where some of the Pharisees and scribes would, would made it okay to lie to it. They made it morally okay to lie to a tax collector. This is how bad they viewed tax collectors and how much they were despised. This is scandalous. Why would Jesus call Levi, while he's at his tax booth, to come follow him? Why would he do this? Why would he go to reach? What, what is it about this person 
that makes him so lovely, that makes him such a, a willing, this would be a great follower of mine. You know, I've got, I've got some fishermen, I need to diversify my, my portfolio of followers, so let me find a tax collector, maybe that will add to the, to the cause. People will really listen to a tax collector while he's not welcome in a synagogue. You see, there's a few things I want us to take away from this passage, and the first is this, is Jesus doesn't look for potential. He just simply offers grace. He doesn't look for potential. You know, every year, today's Super Bowl Sunday, I know most of you, I'm I'm starting to learn my audience, most of you could care less about sports, so I try to hold back my desire to always use sports illustrations, but I can't help it, Super Bowl Sunday, so bear with me. You know, so, like, thank you, Justin. You appreciate it, too, I know. Yes, thank you, thank you. Um, you know, every year, the NFL, NFL draft experts, you know, so if you follow college football, you know, you've got your favorite team, you've got all these guys who are going to become these great athletes in the NFL. And so every year, NFL draft experts are looking for the guys who have all the potential. They call it, they call it, like, they, they call it a ceiling, right? Like, what's his ceiling? Does he have a low floor, meaning like he could be really bad? Or like, hey, he has a high floor, but his ceiling's about the same as the floor. Like he's not going to get much better. He's going to be pretty good, but he's not going to get much better. But what they always, they enamor themselves every year over guys who have potential. They're like, oh, this guy, he's going to be special. His ceiling is like, there is no ceiling. Like he, he could be like Patrick Mahomes, Tom Brady, um, Peyton Manning, all the greats, the Joe Montana, others. Like He has so much potential, and so what they're looking for is guys of potential. They're looking for guys who can have a rocket arm, who are smart, who can diagnose a defense, all these things that you could care less about, so I'm going to stop talking about NFL now. But here's the point, though. They're looking for potential. Listen, we do this if you've ever had had the opportunity to be a part of hiring, right? You're looking for someone who has qualifications, who has a good resume. If If you've never hired someone, if you've probably put together your resume, right? You're trying to highlight your strengths and very much minimize your weaknesses. And you always have prepared the question. What's your greatest weakness? And you're like, all right, here it is. I'm going to give you a strength and make it sound humble (laughs) by somehow I'm going to answer and quickly go to a strength, right? Because we want to maximize our strengths and minimize our weaknesses. We're looking for potential. Maybe it's a a friend and like, wait, what is this person like? How much do they have to offer and how much can I offer and, and all these things? You see, Jesus doesn't look for potential. He's not looking, man, who's, who's got potential in this room? Who can I use in this room? I want us to hear this very strongly this morning. It is all of grace that any of you are in this room this morning, that I'm standing here this morning. It is all of grace. And see, Jesus doesn't just look for potential. He offers, he extends, he lavishes his grace to people. You see, back in this text, look at it again in verse 13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. So he's just in the middle of teaching. And as he passed by, where does he pass by? He saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. I wish I could help you see this so clearly. I'm trying my best right now. 
Like, see what this kind of grace this is. Levi isn't like, man, you know, I think Levi has a lot of good in him. That week, that, that, you know, it's hiding behind the tax booth a little bit. It's hiding behind, there's some potential there. I just need to get him around me a little bit, and I'll clean him up, and then he's going to be awesome for me. He's going to be great. He's going to be a great witness for me. No, this is just grace. He looks at a tax collector who's collecting tax, who maybe, I mean, I when I read this, I can't imagine. He's already called Peter, James, and John with him. And probably Peter, James, and John are nearby. And can you imagine what they're thinking? They walk by. Jesus walks by the tax booth. And they're probably maybe nearby. Maybe they're not. I don't know. It doesn't tell us if they were there near or not. But can you imagine Peter, James, and John, fishermen? And they're like, they're probably looking at each other like, bro, what is Jesus doing? <laughs> we, we don't want to hang out with this guy. He's dirty. He's, he's filthy. He's cheated me out of so many things. He's taken, he took, yesterday he took my fish. <laughs> you know, who knows what they would have been saying, but I can't imagine their heart looking, because here's what we do, right? We look down on people who aren't as, quote, good as us, and we can easily miss the need for grace. And this is what this whole section is about, is grace. And Jesus doesn't just look for potential. He offers and he extends grace. What really is remarkable is in Luke's parallel account of this story. In Luke 5.28, Luke remarks and says, Immediately, Levi left everything and followed him. And what's really neat is history has told us, and we know that the Levi that's referred to here is the same Matthew who wrote the book of Matthew that his name was changed, maybe from, from Levi to changing it to Matthew. And Matthew is named, the, the, the meaning behind Matthew is a gift of God. What a gift. What a gracious gift to take Levi, a tax collector, despised, not just rejected, on his own merit, has, sh- should be, in a sense, rejected. Here's a cheat. He's a a phony, he's a, a, a mean, scheming person. I mean, these were evil, despised people. Like the current day would be viewing it as a mafia. These people were like mafia. They controlled everything because they could take whatever they wanted from whoever they wanted. They just walk into a store and we, I, I own you. Give it up. Clear the room. I'm going to have this table now. They could just walk in a room and do all those kind of things. This is the person, Jesus says, follow me. And he follows you see, not only is Jesus isn't just looking, it's not like he's looking for potential and he's offering and he's extending grace. Here's the second is this, is the grace of Jesus is life-altering. You see, the grace of Jesus is life-altering. Verse 15, and as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed Interesting, he uses the word here, Mark does many, twice. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus at, and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. I think for one, it's interesting that here's the tax collectors and the sinners, quote, unquote, who are following Jesus. And here we see the effects of the grace of Jesus and how it is life altering. This is a transforming, life-altering grace, isn't it? 
you know, growing up in high school, there were those people who show up who are just party killers, you know what I'm talking about, right? Maybe they're still around even as adults too, I'm sure, but <laughs> I remember in high school, you know, there's like certain people, it's like, oh man, if they show up, all right, went the, <laughs> they just brought the life of the party way down. They're the kind of the party killer. Can you imagine the day before Jesus shows up? He's the party killer for these guys. I mean, these guys want to party. They want to drink. They want to have a good time. And Jesus shows up and it's like, oh, man. But here, what's happened in the life of Levi is changed everything about him. Here he is hosting a dinner party and is inviting his friends to come and hear Jesus speak. Listen, you need to hear the one who I've never, I've never heard someone say Come follow me like he said it. Something in the words he said, something in his tone, something in his face. Something, he was, it was like he could see me. He could see right through me. And I'm sure as he's telling this to his associates and for, or former associates and others, he's telling them about the grace of Jesus in his life. Now, here he is. I'm so unworthy. I'm not even accepted in the synagogue. But yet Jesus looked at me and said, Come, follow me. See, the grace of Jesus, it changes everything about a person. But I, I, I'm weary in this area because I'm so concerned that so many people growing up in affluency and growing up in a world where the access to the gospel is so available that we can so minimize grace. We can minimize the grace of God and be like, well, I you know, I, I, I grew up in this home and I, I stumbled upon a Bible or this person invited me and I heard the gospel or maybe I heard it read to me when I was in a crib and all the way up and, then, and all of a sudden I'm here today. And you can, you can even point to maybe your own record and be like, you know, I mean, I'm not that bad of a person. I'm, I, I tried to be pretty good. I, I think God likes me. I think he accepts me because I'm trying my best. He, he's going to earn, he's going he's to accept me because I'm trying my best, right? I mean, surely he'll accept me if I just put some effort into it. You see, we minimize grace's effect when we start thinking that we have earned acceptance by God. You see, nothing about Levi was earned. But here's the problem. We need to hear that too, that nothing that I have experienced in this life was earned by me. My relationship with God was never earned. God's calling me towards ministry was not earned. This was a calling. This was God's grace in my life. God exposing me to the gospel at an early age and then leading me to full dependence on him when I was 17. You see, this is God's grace, but here's what that grace does. It changes you. It changes a party. It changes the way a party happens, and I'm sure this party looked a lot different than the parties that previously happened. And here, Jesus is reclining at table. This is something that's a lot different than our culture today. I mean, yes, but in our seclusion, in our homes, these kind of parties and these things would be noticed, and it was gonna, people were going to pay attention at who you actually would eat with. 
you know, if you happen to be just sharing a table at Chipotle, right, like you don't know this person from Adam, right? You might never talk to him, but you're sitting literally right next to him. It's a little awkward sometimes. That's why a lot of people go to Chipotle and take it to go, I guess. I don't know. But, um, but the point being is, is, is this. You're not associated with the people you eat, but in this culture, who you dine with and who you share with speaks a lot about who you are. This is why this is so scandalous. Because the scribes and the Pharisees are going like, what is Jesus doing at a tax collector's party. And so they grumble and complain. They wonder, what is Jesus doing eating with these people? You sure? I'm, I'm sure this was very scandalous. And if, if different news organizations were around, they would have been, this would have been the highlight of that night. This would have been prime news the next day about Jesus has eaten with tax collectors. Come tomorrow for more information on what happened at this event. You see, Jesus isn't worried about his reputation. Levi, I can't be seen with these people. And no, he doesn't say this. He goes to the sinner. He goes to the cynic. He goes to them and he calls them to follow him. And so the scribes and the Pharisees, sure enough, see this. But I'm guessing Jesus wanted them to see him. And so in verse 16 and 17, they ask this. Look at verse 16. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, so they said to Peter, James, and John, and others, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? They're asking this question. They're not just saying like, I wonder, really, why does he do this? No, they're, they're questioning his morality, they're questioning, like, his morals, like, wait, you know, like, like that's going to make him spiritually unclean. Like, you can't be, he can't be ritually clean if he just goes and hangs out with these outcasts of society. This is improper for a, a proper rabbi to be doing. And so they ask this question, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? In verse 17, and when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I want you to think about that. How, think how arrogant this question is. Why does Jesus eat with sinners? What does that sound like? Like, because here's the thing. There's only, there's only two types of people at, at the party. There's sinners and there's Jesus. <laughs> like, there's no other category. There's sinful people and Jesus. Jesus is the only one who's not a sinner. These Pharisees and scribes, they're sinners. They're sinful people. They don't deserve God's grace, just like Levi doesn't deserve God's grace. And none of these tax collector friends deserve his grace. But yet, it has been extended. And here's what I want you to catch with this last point is this, is self-righteousness blinds us to grace. It always blinds us to grace. Self-righteousness will blind you to the grace of God in your life. You see, it'll make you say statements like this. Why does Jesus eat with sinners? (laughs) For one, how derogatory. Like, bro, do you know who you are? See, self-righteousness is very blinding. It blinds us from our need of the gospel. It blinds us from who God is. It blinds us to the reality of who we really are. You see, self-righteousness blinds us from 
receiving the gospel. You see, self-righteousness is the only people who are never going to be saved because they're self-righteous. Yes, they can turn from self-righteousness. God can be gracious and open their eyes because I feel like that was me growing up for about 12 years of my life was self-righteous. I was looking to my righteousness and seeing it was good enough until I recognized my depravity and my need of grace. That was not until that point do I really believe that I was a child of the king. I think I was an imposter. I was a phony. I wasn't real. I was like these scribes and Pharisees who looked at what Jesus was doing and saw it as scandalous. You see, it is scandalous. It's scandalous grace. It's the grace of God to be so it's ravenous. It's so it's outrageous. It is, it doesn't make sense. God's grace doesn't make sense. But here's the reality: we need his grace. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us this amazing truth, right? We are not saved on our works, lest anyone should boast. It is only by grace you have been saved through faith. It's a gift given. You see how it was irresistible for Levi? The gift was given. Come, follow me. And what happens? He responds. It wasn't like, oh man, you know, I've been, I've been trying to figure this thing out. Now this makes sense. You're the Messiah. Okay, yeah, I'll, I'll follow you. No, like God's grace overwhelmed him. But we, and here's what I want to say here, we can be very blinded by our own self-righteousness. To illustrate that, I, I think of my former pastor, the previous church that I served, John. I got to talk to him this week for a little bit and catch up and um, I remember him sharing this in one of his sermons, and he was saying how him and his son were in a blockbuster. Now, that tells you how old it was, right? You're like, blockbuster, wow. That's like, that's pretty cool. Uh, well, they, he was like, he was in a blockbuster one night with him and his son, and they were going to pick out a movie, and you know, it was back in the heyday of blockbuster, so everyone was there on a Friday night picking out their movie. And so, sure enough, he's there with his son, and they're looking, and then at the cash register was this lady who had a lot of tattoos and a lot of um, a lot of piercings, and her hair was different colors, and all this kind of stuff, and he, he was standing there in line with his, uh, with his son, and he was like, do you see that? He, 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 like, he said to his son, he's like, do you see that woman? Like, condescendingly, and his son looked at him and was like, dad, <laughs> like, like, that's inappropriate, especially for a pastor, right? And so, sure enough, they get up there, and he's like, man, he was, think, he was thinking about that. They get up there, and sure enough, in the sovereignty of God, as he tells the story, um, uh, sure enough, she was the one who was checking them out. And so he's there, and the lady looks at him, and she, she says, you know, my mom and I, we love your sermons. We love your, your messages so much. We're so thankful for you. And like his son's just sitting there with a big smirk on his face, like, oh, man, God got you today, right? Here you are. We can make so much judgments on people by appearances and different things. And we can become so easily self-righteous. Like, at least I'm not like this person. Listen, as a pastor, it's easy to do as well. It can be so focused on the, the needs of the people, looking at the issues and the struggles and the trials and, and wanting to see God change your life and bring you to love Him and adore Him that I, in my own heart, can drift and not be focused on what God is working in my heart. And I can become self-righteous. And see, self-righteousness, it blinds you from grace. You miss out on grace. And listen, I, 
I want you to see this and be amazed by the goodness of God in our lives. That He calls sinners and He calls them to follow Him. That He calls the outcasts, the marginalized. He calls the person who is self-righteous. He says, hey, come follow me. He extended as Nicodemus came and talked to him in John chapter 3. He looked at him, but how is John chapter 3? How does, how is Nicodemus changed? You know, it's the phrase that we use. It's a phrase that's not very common. We don't use it a lot. It's born again. You see, because why? Because a person who comes to faith in Christ needs a new heart. They need to be born again. They need to be changed. And how does that happen? It doesn't happen by by brushing up and cleaning up yourself. No, it happens by grace. God gifting you a new heart. A heart that loves Him, that longs to follow Him, that's willing to say, I'm going to give up my very lucrative business of, of, as a tax collector. I'm going to leave it all behind and follow you because your grace has overwhelmed me. You see, God's grace has come in Christ Jesus. The response and the vehicle to receive His grace is by faith in this one named Jesus. But I don't want us to be like the scribes and the Pharisees who question and wonder, why would Jesus eat with those people? But notice Jesus' response. Those who are well have no need of a physician. I mean, can you imagine? Uh, we have a doctor who attends here as well. I can't imagine. It's Christmas morning. And I call him up and I'm like, hey, man, can you come? I need some help. Can you come this way? I mean, like, I, know, I know you're probably opening gifts and all those things, but would you just, just come real quick? And, and, and so sure enough, he's like, oh, man, Eric's in trouble. I need to, I need to go and all this stuff. So he comes. He comes to the door and he, uh, he, he knocks on the door. It's Christmas morning. And uh, I look him in the eye and I said, man, can you believe how healthy I am? <laughs> can you believe I'm doing great? Man, I just want to tell you how awesome I'm doing right now. Like, everything in my life is healthy. Like, heart's functioning well, no need for a stethoscope, all those things. Just want to tell you. <laughs> you know what? He would look at me like I was nuts. Like, the only, re- only reason he's coming to get, he's going to leave his family and come and assist is for an emergency of someone needs help. They need help. You see, we need help, but God, with self-righteous people, they don't think they need help. They don't think they need God. And so God says, I don't come for the well. It doesn't mean literally the well because no person is well. I would argue that the self-righteous person is the person who's the furthest from the gospel. They might be near in proximity, but it's done nothing to their heart. They might think that they're near God, but they're actually further from Him. You see, one more NFL illustration. It's Sunday, NFL Sunday. Um, Back several years ago, back in the 70s, there was an NFL lineman for the Minnesota Vikings who recovered a fumble. (laughs) Some of you who do not remember this, which is probably most of you, you can Google it later if you want and watch it. Here he is, he's this this amazing tackle, all this stuff. He grabs the football and he just starts running. And he's running and running, heading to the end zone. And he's looking behind him, looking behind him. No one's coming after him. No one's going to tackle him. He runs in the end zone. He throws the ball in the air to realize he has gone the wrong direction. (laughs) He ran to the, the, the other team's end zone. He wasn't going the right direction. He was running. And here's my fear. I'm, my fear is that many people with self-righteousness, they're running in the wrong direction and have no idea how far they actually are from the Lord when they think they're very near. Listen, don't let self-righteousness creep into your heart. Let it lead you to a great love for God, 
a willingness to give up everything to follow him, a willingness to invest in the outcasts, the marginalized, to, to look to how can I be a light in this community? See, Jesus said in, in his high priestly prayer in John 17, he prayed this amazing prayer for his followers. And as he's praying this prayer, he says, Father, Father, don't, like basically he says this, don't remove them from this world, but rather protect them from the evil one. He doesn't say, like, remove them from some society, take them away from society because I don't want them to, to mess up their faith. It's very fragile. They might get caught up in the things of this world. So let's just put them in a, on an island with all Christian believers and other followers. Let's seclude them or just take them to heaven. No, he says, like, don't remove them. Keep them here, but protect them from the evil one. You see, we're not Jesus. We're not perfect. We're, we're incapable of perfection. That's why we need His grace. But while we're here, we're to be a light and we're to be ambassadors for this gospel. And don't let self-righteousness lead us to look down on other people and miss out grace, God's grace in our lives. I want to encourage you with that. God's grace is always greater than all of our sins. We've been singing about this. His mercy is more. We need His mercy. It is only by grace that we live and move, and that we have an opportunity to respond to the gospel. This is the grace that changed Levi's life. It's the, the grace, though, that can change the, the hardest of hardened hearts. You see, Jesus is this friend of sinners, and he calls them to come and follow me. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the grace that's given just by giving us the gospel, to give us your word. Thank you for this amazing grace, the grace that um, is greater than all of our sins. But God, I thank you that you call the unlikely, the unworthy, because ultimately we are all unworthy and in need of your grace. And so, Father, I pray that you'll move us that you'll move us out of our apathy, of our pride, of our self-reliance, of our self-righteousness. God, would you remove these things from our hearts? God, we need your transforming grace. God, change us. Give us a heart like yours that loves you with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our might, and loves our neighbor as ourself. God, give us your eyes to see people. Give us your ears to hear people. Give us your hands to show compassion and love to other people. God, pour out your grace in and through our lives so that we can also be gracious to others. Oh, Father, you know my heart. You know my heart's desire is for people to not lean on themselves like I did for so many years. God, forgive us of our pride, of our self-righteousness. God, remove that from our hearts. Pour out your grace. Be gracious to us. We need it. Help us, God. Help us to live this week in light of eternity. May we, with a willingness to say, God, I will give up everything to follow you, just like Levi. Thank you for this gift, this wonderful gift of grace. We ask this all in Jesus' name.